Fellow students, have you ever thought that we appreciate the rain the most when we don't get it? If it rained every day, we would, we would just take it for granted, but I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued that uh, the last four or five days it's rained and then cleared up and then rained again, and to have it rain more than once in a week is kind of amazing. So the Lord sometimes teaches us to appreciate the rain in the middle of the droughts. And I think that's true in our lives too, isn't it? Sometimes we really appreciate the blessings when we experience the difficult times. So if you would be so kind, uh, fellow students, to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, we're gonna pick up the parable uh, probably in starting at about verse 12. So the, the context within which this particular book was written, Paul has visited Greece on his second missionary tour. And he founded the church in Corinth about 51 AD. He had come 45 miles uh, west from Athens, and before Athens, he was up in Berea. So this letter was written about four years, three to four years after the church was founded. So the Corinthian church is about three to four years old, most likely four years old. And this letter was written about 54, 55 AD. Uh, after Paul had founded the Corinthian church, he went on to Ephesus, then went to Jerusalem, and then took his third missionary tour. And the biggest chunk of time in the third missionary tour was spent in the city of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea. He spent about three years in Ephesus. He had spent 18 months in Corinth. So these two cities, these two churches is where Paul had spent the bulk of his missionary tours, 18 months in Corinth and three years in Ephesus. Now the church in Corinth is such a mess that they had sent a delegation across the water to Paul in Ephesus and said, we need some help. And boy, how did, did they need help? Uh, the church had a number of significant problems. The most obvious one is there were just an enormous amount of quarrels and divisions and fighting and bickering and one-upsmanship going on in the church. They've divided into cliques. And each clique idolizes this particular leader. I am of Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. So there was a lot of pride and arrogance going on. They were idolizing these human leaders instead of worshiping Jesus Christ. They really had never abandoned their pagan worldly philosophy and now they brought that philosophy about, I'm big, you're small, I'm good, you're bad. They had brought that into the church at Corinth. So it was a lot of, of um, uh, arrogance and uh, I'm better than you are type of thing. They'd been Christians for about four years and Paul says you're still behaving like infants. You're still behaving like spiritual babies. So there was not a whole lot of maturity going on, if any, of that. And probably the most shocking thing in 1 Corinthians 5, if you read that, is one of their church members was involved in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And even the pagan Greco-Roman world just said that is out of bounds. You can't be doing this stuff. But what was really shocking is that the Corinthian church really, really uh, prided themselves on being open-minded. And they were proud of the fact that they would tolerate this kind of uh, wicked sexual behavior in a member of their own church family and not do anything about it. They wouldn't speak to them, they wouldn't confront the issue, they wouldn't uh, take that member and disfellowship them even though this uh, sin inside the church was so bad that even the pagan world said, how can you put up with that stuff, right? Even that's over the top. Um, they were actually going to court routinely and suing each other to get their rights and Paul, uh, yeah, just the earlier part of this chapter, confronts them and says, how is it that you can sue a family member and take them to court in front of a pagan judge? How is it that there's not even one wise person in your church family that can uh, deal with these kinds of issues? So the church was acting just like the world, right? But even worse, they were acting in such a way that they were losing their testimony as Christians. They claimed with their mouth to believe in and belong to a perfect, holy, loving God, and yet they were living like the devil. Now, if you know one thing, you know the world can smell religious hypocrisy a mile away. And the church in that particular town, Corinth, was behaving like the world, but they were claiming to live like God himself. 
So the world assumes, when you and I live a life of hypocrisy, the world assumes that since you represent the God you claim to serve, they assume that your God must be like you. Pretty tough to follow a God who you say is X when you're living like Y. Pretty tough to follow a God, if you're the world, uh, who says, um, I live like this, I, I believe in this holy, loving, forgiving, perfect, righteous God, but I live like the devil. It confuses those who are watching. Paul says your hypocrisy has got to be dealt with. So he writes this letter and he confronts this sin head on in the first four or five chapters. He reminds them of who they are and whose they are, who they belong to. He reminds them that God's wisdom is superior to worldly wisdom. He tells them to stop this petty, selfish one-upsmanship and to become unified. He reminds them that their pride is what's keeping them immature and sinful and selfish. He commands them to stop tolerating open sin within the church. The church is supposed to be pure. They need to refuse to fellowship with people who refuse to stop sinning. And that's a pretty tough one in our tolerant culture. We have a tolerant culture that says anything is acceptable. No, it's not. Paul says, if people refuse to stop sinning, you refuse to fellowship with them. Not outside, but inside the body. He's talking about inside the church. Paul commands them to stop suing each other. says, better lose the money. Better lose the money than lose your testimony. Better lose the money than lose a family member. A family member. How could you sue a family member and lose a family member? Trust God to take care of your needs. The monetary loss is far less than the spiritual loss which the lawsuits are producing. So he's, Paul has been teaching them throughout that Christians are free from the requirements of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Paul has been teaching them salvation is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law. And that's true. Paul says this produces great freedom in the life of the believer. But Paul has limited his liberty by his love for God and his love for his neighbor. The Corinthians took that freedom and rationalized it in excusing their sinful lifestyle. So Paul's going to address this in the last half of chapter 6. Let's pick up the story, the narrative at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Here's the principle. Refuse to practice anything that enslaves you or makes you unprofitable to God. Refuse to practice anything that enslaves you or makes you unprofitable to God. Now this first phrase, all things are lawful for me or all things are permissible, this was in fact a saying of Paul's. Paul had said, literally, everything is right unless the word of God says it's wrong. Now here's the difference between a legalist and one who's free in Christ. A legalist says everything is wrong unless the word of God explicitly says you can do it. One who is free in Christ says everything is okay to do unless the word of God specifically forbids it. How many commandments are there? How many? Why not a thousand? Why only 10? We can't even keep the 10, right? Only 10. Outside of that, you're free, right? Inside the framework of obedience to God, we have tremendous freedom. Now, the Corinthians were twisting that statement to justify their sexual sins. What they were saying is, God's moral law has no bearing on me. And here's the essence of their argument. The Corinthians were saying, whatever's legal is also moral. Whatever is legal is also moral. If it's not against human law, if it's legal according to human standards, I'm free to practice it. What you need to understand is that Corinth at this point in time was sin city and sex city. Religious prostitution in Corinth at this point was legal, widely practiced, universally accepted. The temple of Aphrodite, about 2,000 feet above sea level there, the high city, the Acropolis, had over 1,000 male and female prostitutes who in the name of religion 
practice their sex trade every night in the city at large. That was legal, accepted, and widely practiced. It was a sex-saturated city, and that behavior had now bled into the church because people who came to Christ inside the church had not repented and turned away from that sin. They just carried that behavior inside the church. Now, Paul, in responding to their argument, all things are lawful means I can sin without a problem because the state says it's okay. Paul could have argued, look, obviously if everything's lawful, you have chaos. We know what happens when the police go on strike or when there's a hurricane and there's no legal structure in place. People's behavior turns into looting and vandalism very, very quickly. But Paul lists two constraints on our freedom to choose as Christians. One, not everything that is legal is profitable. Not everything that's legal is profitable. Some things that are legal are sinful. Yes? Some things that are legal are sinful, and you can choose to sin legally. People loot all the time. In our country today, there is no enforceable law on the books against fornication. There isn't. There's no enforceable law on our books against adultery. There used to be. Sexual behavior today is expected. It is encouraged at younger and younger and younger ages. It's viewed as inevitable. Of course they're going to sexually act out, and there's nothing you can do about it, so let's do what we can to encourage that and protect them. No-fault divorce has been part of our culture for over 50 years in the late 60s, early 70s. Now, Paul says there is no sin that a Christian commits that's not forgivable. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But even though every sin is forgivable, sin is never profitable. Sin always produces losses. Write that one down. Sin always produces losses. Anytime you break the covenant of God, you are creating moral, ethical, financial, relational, emotional loss in your life. Sin is never profitable. The price of sin is too high. Jesus Christ will forgive you from any sin, but the consequences of that sin you still have to live with. Amen? Especially sexual sin. The cost in broken relationships, the cost in emotional pain, the cost in disease, the cost in divorce, the cost in financial bondage and servitude for spousal support, child support, you could go on and on and on. It's enormous. Sin always produces losses, never gains. You know, this life you and I live is a marathon. Paul often talks about life as a race. Life is not a sprint. Life is a marathon. It's a long race. As a runner, I want you to pretend that you're, in a, you're, you're running a marathon. You are free to carry anything you choose when you run that marathon, aren't you? You run that marathon, you can carry anything you want with you. Matter of fact, you could carry a suitcase. That's a long race, right? It's 26 miles. I might need to change the clothes. You don't know, all right? You've got to change that, you know? So a suitcase is pretty useful when traveling. But it's not very useful to carry a suitcase when you're running a marathon. Just a thought. If it doesn't help you run, it's hindering your ability to run. I want you to take that in your life. You're running a marathon. If it doesn't help you run the race of life, it's hindering your ability to run the race of life. Hebrews 12 tells us to lay aside every encumbrance, doesn't it? And the sin which so easily entangles us so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we can run and not get tired. Many, many people are running the race of life carrying a lot of baggage. I'm going to encourage you to go home today and take a look at the amount of baggage in your life. And I know the physical baggage is pretty easy. You all have at least one junk room in the house. Maybe you've got a whole junk floor in the house. But, you know, we all have baggage. But that's not the kind of baggage I'm talking about. I'm, look, I'm talking about the spiritual baggage, the emotional baggage, the attitudinal baggage, the belief system baggage. 
What are we carrying in our life that's hindering us from running the race with endurance? Your life purpose is to run your race of life in order to please Jesus and get to the finish line at a full stride. What are we carrying around in our life that's hindering our ability to finish well? Paul says, jettison those encumbrances. Deal with the sin that so easily entangles us. One of the things that will hinder your life as much as anything else is bad habits. Right? Bad habits. Bad habits will weigh you down. So number one, don't practice any behavior that is not profitable. Spiritually not profitable. Number two, never practice any behavior that can enslave you or master you. The Corinthians here are viewing a visit to a prostitute as a very casual thing. They're viewing it as a very, as something with no consequences. I can go to a temple prostitute, engage in sexual sin, and there's not a lot of consequences. In the name of Christian freedom, the Corinthians, in the name of Christian freedom, the Corinthians are choosing slavery. Slavery to their own passions. Paul says sexual immorality does not free you, it enslaves you. It doesn't make you stronger, it makes you weaker. You know, the best example of this I can think of in Scripture is Samson. Remember Samson? The strongest man who ever lived physically. But morally and spiritually, he was a pygmy. He was one of the weakest of all. He was often described as being under the influence and under the control of a Philistine woman. A number of them. Several of them harlots. He could kill a thousand soldiers in one afternoon, but he couldn't conquer his own lust. So he became a slave of what he had freedom to pursue. And if you're the strongest man, you attract a lot of female attention, and he didn't deal with that well. It conquered him. Ultimately, his slavery to sexual sin led to his capture, his blindness, his imprisonment, and ultimately his death. Every, every, every character in Scripture, by the way, every biographical character in Scripture is either an example or a warning. Everyone. An example, follow that, a warning, don't follow that. Well, Samson is a warning, don't do what Samson did. You know, I come from a psychological background years ago as a therapist, and one of the words that's bandied about a lot in our culture today is addiction. When you are addicted to something, you are mastered by it. When you are addicted to something, you are not in control, it's in control. Sexual sin is particularly addicting because it progresses so rapidly. You begin with a thought, then a look, then some talk, then some touch, and before you know it, you've lost your mind, and you are off to the races. Amen? Some of you are saying, somewhere when I was younger back then, I kind of vaguely remember that. Yeah. You can still lose your marbles today, right up here. Starts in the brain. Sexual sin may begin innocently, but it never stays there. The Corinthian church was rationalizing. It says this is a very casual deal. Pastor Roger said, I don't know how many times, sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. Sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. James 1.4 gives us the narrative about how this works. James 1.14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We're very easy to go, well, Satan made me do it. Well, Satan's going to tempt you, but you made you do it. Right? Look in the mirror. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The progression is temptation to lust to sin to death. Here's how it works. Temptation knocks on your door. How many of you have had temptation knock on your door this last week? How many of you had temptation knock on your door this morning? I don't necessarily mean just sexual temptation, just temptation in general. Yeah, you always. Temptation is always knocking on your door. 
Here's what happens. Temptation knocks on your door and your own lust, your own sinful flesh, which we all have, which we're going to have until we go home to be with Jesus. We have the old Adamic nature. We have the old prideful, self-centered flesh. Our own sinful flesh does what? Answers the door. Doesn't even look out through the peephole to see what's knocking. It just opens the door and says, hey, temptation, good to see ya. I've been waiting for an opportunity. Wow. And you're back there going, don't answer the door. No, you're not. You're right there going, mm, okay, yeah, it answers the door. Starts a conversation with temptation. Your flesh starts a conversation with temptation. Your old internal sin nature, this has an affair with this external temptation and sin is born. Yes? And sin always grows up into death. What's the solution? Don't answer the door. Just because someone's knocking at your door doesn't mean you have to answer. Yes? How many of you believe that when the phone rings, you have to pick it up? Where did that come from? Let it ring. Come on. Temptation's always going to knock. If you spend all day long answering the door of temptation, you're not going to get anything else done. Right? Ignore it. The Zulu tribe in Africa, interesting tribe, they have successfully trapped ring-tailed monkeys for generations. And they've used the same technique for hundreds of years. The ring-tailed monkey, by the way, is a very tough animal to uh, corral. But this monkey loves the seeds in a certain melon. Now what the Zulus do is they cut a hole in the melon, because it's pretty hard-skinned melon, just enough for the monkey to put their hand in and grab the seed, right? However, when their hand is grabbed the seeds, their hand's in a fist, and they can't get the hand out of the melon. The Zulu can actually walk up to the monkey, and the monkey's da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Their fist is in the hole. They've got the seed, but they won't let go of the seeds, which they love. And so they're captured and killed. And you look and you go, whoa, what's with this picture? You want the seed so bad you're willing to get killed for it. What are we hanging on to that we're not willing to let go of? That's going to take us to lust, sin, and death? Let go of it. Why would you die for a seed? And that's what lust does. By the way, lust doesn't just mean sexual sin. Lust is any desire that cannot be fulfilled inside the will of God. Write it down. Lust is any desire that cannot be fulfilled inside the will of God. You never lust for your spouse. That is within the will of God. Right? So you, ha you can't use that word. You desire your spouse. You should desire your spouse. That's God's desire. He created sex, right? It's a good thing. But it's not lust. Lust is something you cannot fulfill outside the will of God. This monkey lusts after the seeds that they're unwilling to open their hand, and that's a pretty good word picture for us. It's a fact of life that you will always serve what you lust for. It's a fact of life. And everyone and everybody is serving something or someone. Paul says, don't serve anything that will enslave you. And you say, well, Brad, what's the solution? If we all serve and we all serve what we long for, here's the solution. The only solution to being mastered by something that enslaves you is to serve the master who sets you free. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only master who will set you free and not enslave you. So if you're serving anything other than Jesus Christ, you're in bondage. You may think you're free, but you're a slave to yourself. And self is a lousy master. Paul says, never practice any behavior that can enslave you or master you. And you know what that tells us? Be very careful of the habits you form. Because ultimately your habits will shape you. So be very careful. Take a good look at the habits. What are your habits? Are they habits that draw you closer to Jesus? Or are they habits that take you away from Jesus? You might have to break some of those by God's power. So the application is anything you value more than Jesus will enslave you. 
Jesus is the only master who will set us free. And if you want to look at some examples, what did Judas value more than Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. He sold the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver, and he had seen him face to face and walked with him for three plus years and seen all the miracles. Now that's what you call a stupid decision. And yet, we do it every day in minor ways. I'll tell you, last night, I'm done with the lesson. I got a little time, which almost never occurs. There's very little time in my life that's not purpose-focused already. And I'm reading John Piper's book, which is a really good book. He's written a number of them. But then what I really want to do is pull my iPad out and get on YouTube. Ever had that temptation? You know how much time you can kill with an iPad on YouTube? Just surfing for whatever. I want to see a wingsuit at 180 miles an hour going through a can. I mean, you can spend a lot of time on YouTube, right? I'm not saying YouTube's bad, but it's a choice. You're trading something for something. I'm just saying be conscious of what the choice is. God won the victory that yes, last night. I actually read Piper and didn't open the iPad. I was amazed. <laughs> Solomon. Solomon valued his foreign pagan wives more than God himself, and they turned his heart away from God. He served their idols. He refused to repent and wound up lonely, bitter, depressed. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going, man, this guy is bipolar, and it's all depression. There's no mania here. That's all gone, right? Slavery takes many, 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 many forms. Paul says, don't engage in any practice that enslaves you. Slavery shows up in a lot of interesting ways. I knew a diabetic client of mine who, after his wife went to bed, would sneak out of the house, go down to the store, buy five pounds of potatoes, sneak back home, and OD on a huge batch of mashed potatoes to feed his carb addiction because he was diabetic. It killed him. He's dead. You look and you go, Brad, I've heard of sex, drugs, alcohol, rock and roll, but mashed potatoes? <laughs> really? I mean, that's carb addiction on steroids, but slavery takes many forms. Here's what happens. We can all see the slavery in somebody else's life, and we're all world-class at rationalizing it in our life, aren't we? The Holy Spirit will show you what you're doing that's not spiritually profitable and what you're doing that is enslaving. Ask God to show you. Once you find out, 1 Thessalonians 4, God has an opinion, a truth, a law of the universe about how we should manage our sexual drive. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So God's plan for us is to be holy, and sexual immorality is unholy. You know what Paul says? Just say no. no. To who? To yourself. Where did you get the idea that saying yes to yourself is always a good idea? I've gotten myself in some really deep doo-doo by saying yes to myself. Say no to yourself. You're not that important. Now, judgment without the Holy Spirit is reliably what? Without the Holy Spirit, our judgment is reliably stupid. Yes, it is. So just say no. Paul says you're not in called to indulge your bodies. You're called to discipline your bodies, right? Don't let your body order you around. You tell your body what to do. Every morning at 5.30, I command my body to get out of bed and go downstairs and exercise. My body generally doesn't want to obey me. But body's not in charge. I am. Sometimes my body's so rebellious that I have to throw him on the floor and make him do 20 push-ups just to remind him who's the boss. You ever done that? Body says, if, yeah. Yeah. 
You know what they tell beginning attorneys? Never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. I recommend that if you want to be tweaked like me, that you do that. Here's the problem. Body says to me, if I'm going to go down to do 20 push-ups, you got to go with me. See, my, I want to stay in bed and make body go do the work. Body says, if I'm going to do the work, you got to do with me. You know, if I let my body do whatever my body wanted to do, I would be dead by now. Literally, I would be dead. You have to tell your body what to do. Don't ever let your body tell you what to do, especially in areas of morality. Verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now, here's what the Corinthians were saying. The Corinthians were trying to justify their sexual immorality by using the phrase, look, food is for the stomach, stomach's for food. The purpose of food is to satisfy hunger, and the stomach, of course, is designed by God to utilize that food to meet that need. So the Corinthians are equating physical appetites with sexual appetites. God designed the stomach to eat when it's hungry, and he designed the human body to engage in sexual behavior when it's hungry. I mean, that's what they were saying. In other words... Sex is just biological. It, there's no morality to it. It's biological. You're hungry, you eat. If you're sexually hungry, you participate. It's just a biological thing, and that's how God does it at that point. And that belief system is very common today. What do we call it? Friends with benefits is a euphemism for sex without commitment. Right? It's not a spiritual issue. It's just a biological need. That's all. It's just real simple. Animals mate without guilt or commitment. Humans should mate without guilt or commitment as well. God says through Paul, the food and the stomach are not in the same category as sex in the body. Because food and the stomach are not eternal. Food and the stomach won't be in heaven. You won't get hungry in heaven. You won't need a stomach to process food in heaven, right? So the food and the stomach are a different category. But... The body is created for eternity. Food in the stomach are not going to be in heaven, but your body will be in heaven. You are going to get a resurrected body in heaven. And we know that because God's going to raise our bodies. Paul just says that in the next phrase. He says, I'm going to raise those bodies from the dead, and we're going to have those resurrected bodies throughout eternity. And heaven is a holy place, and therefore your body was created for holiness, not for immorality. God created our bodies. He did not give us sexual desires to illicitly satisfy. He says your body was created for who? For who? Well, for me, obviously, it's my body, right? No, it's not your body. Your body is for the Lord. Your body belongs to God. And the purpose of your body is not to please and serve yourself, but to please and serve him. You don't own your body. Regardless of what the culture says, you do not own your body. You are a manager of your body. You are a steward of your body. You manage that which belongs to somebody else. And you're accountable to God for how you manage your body. So the, your body's for the Lord, but also the Lord is for your body. The human body was designed for God to live inside of. You know, Paul's talking about food. Our, our life ultimately comes from the Lord, not from food. The Israelites lived for 40 years in the wilderness on manna. And where did manna come from? God. You and I eat physical food for physical life. Where does our food come from? God. Who creates the soil? Who creates the rains? Who puts life into the seeds? Who creates reproduction in the seeds so they spout and multiply and create life? God. Beyond the physical needs of life, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. 
Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's the principle. Those who are spiritually united with Christ should never become sexually united outside of marriage. So there's two dimensions at work here. We have a vertical relationship, a vertical spiritual eternal relationship with Jesus, and we have a horizontal set of relationships with other people in our lives. The vertical relationship we have with Jesus should control the horizontal relationship you have with other people. In this chapter, Paul says six times, or do you not know? Six times, that phrase. He's telling them, you ought to know this. I'm reminding you, I've told you this before. This is not new teaching. This is a repetition of the same teaching. It's a rebuke. And he says, or do you not know? Haven't you remembered? Don't you remember that we talked about this, right? Here's the point. At the moment of salvation, we are adopted into God's forever family. At the moment of salvation, even more intimately, we become members of Jesus' body, his church. We become members of his body. We are intimately connected with Jesus spiritually as your head is to your neck. It's an intimate connection, spiritual connection. The very life of Jesus Christ flows in our veins physically and spiritually because we are spiritually united with him at the moment of salvation. So we become part of his family and we become part of his body. Everywhere you go, Christ goes because you're part of his body. He lives inside you. He is your life. Paul says, how could you take your body, which is united with Christ, indwelt by Christ, and unite it horizontally with a prostitute? Unthinkable. Unbelievable. He says, may it never be. How could you sin horizontally and be united with a prostitute when Jesus Christ lives in your life and you drag him into that sin? And you make him participate, right? The church at Corinth was treating their sexual relationship with prostitutes very casually. They were also treating their spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ too casually. They are one spirit with Christ, these Christians, and yet they are becoming one flesh with a prostitute at the same time. And Paul says, whoa, 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 stop. He says, don't you know that the two shall become one flesh? In Genesis 2, God made humanity, male and female. And in marriage, when he instituted the first marriage, he said, the two shall become one flesh. Husband and wife become one flesh when they sexually consummate their marriage. But so does one who unites with a prostitute. One flesh is not unique to marriage. I used to think that. Sexual intercourse is a union, not just a physical union, but a spiritual union. Understand there's a spiritual dimension to our sexual relationships, not just a physical dimension to our sexual relationships. When two people become one physically, sexually, they become one spiritually. I don't pretend to understand this. Scripture calls it a mystery. So when a Christian has sex with anyone other than their spouse, they drag Jesus into that since he lives inside every Christian. That's why sex outside marriage is prohibited because it forges a spiritual bond horizontally with someone other than your God-given spouse. Does that make sense? We treat sex extremely casually as culture because we do not accept God's definition that a sexual relationship forges a spiritual oneness, not simply a physical oneness. And our culture has said, ah, eh, it's just biological. There's no spiritual dimension at all to it. God says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So sexual immorality violates not just our relationship with our spouse if we're married, but it, more importantly, it violates our spiritual union with the Lord. 
We are involving God in prostitution. That's what he's saying. You're taking a holy God, your holy God, and you're involving him in sinful, illicit sexual behavior. So how do you deal with sexual temptation? You run. You run, verse 18. You literally run for your life. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Here's the principle. Don't stand your ground to fight sexual immorality. Run for your life. Here's the problem. If you stand and try and fight sexual immorality, your own body will betray you. Your own body will answer the door and have a conversation with temptation, right? And engage your body in something that your mind and your soul and your spirit doesn't need to do. You flee. You run out of there. You get out of there. Be like Joseph. Remember Joseph? Nice young man, spiritual man, <clears throat> handsome man, bright man. He's working for Potiphar in Potiphar's house. That's where the office was. Potiphar's wife, she keeps propositioning him over and over and over and over and over. And he keeps refusing her again and again. And he makes sure that somebody's always in the house with him. He wants to make sure that there's somebody with him for protection. And one day she arranges for everyone to be out of the house. And then she stops talking. She just grabs him. That's kind of the direct approach, right? Grab him. Right? He leaves his coat, runs out the door. That's a literal model for what we should be doing. Sometimes you and I just need to do what? Shut the computer off. Just turn it off. It's called walk away. They taught that in kindergarten, right? Walk away, yeah. Turn off the television. When your friend's conversation goes south, walk away. Get out of there. See, sexual sin is so lethal because you're sinning against your own body. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Here's the principle. Jesus bought you, owns you, and lives in you. Manage your body so that he is honored. Jesus bought you, owns you, and lives in you. Manage your body so that he is honored. See, God the Holy Spirit lives inside us 24-7. There's nothing you can think, feel, say, do, behave that you don't take God with you. When you're looking at porn, the Holy Spirit's looking at porn. When you run your mouth and say things you're going to be sorry for, the Holy Spirit listens to that. When you look with your eyes at something you shouldn't be looking at, the Holy Spirit's looking with you. Everything we do, we take God with us. Now, we didn't earn the right to have the Holy Spirit inside us. We didn't earn the right for the Holy Spirit to guide us, direct us, protect us, teach us, comfort us, remind us, convict us, and show us Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a gift. The Holy Spirit's a gift from God to each one of us. Jesus said in John 14, 6, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. In other words, Jesus is going back to heaven. He says, I'm going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever. You can't lose the Holy Spirit. Praise God, we can't lose him. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and is in you. What a treasure. God himself lives inside us. He gives us instruction and power and correction and encouragement. The Holy Spirit is invisible. And you go, well, yeah, that's probably pretty obvious, Brad. No, the Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the leaves move, so you know the wind's there. You see what the Holy Spirit does. How many of you have ever seen the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C.? 
Remember what that picture looks like? Have you ever seen any public building that's illuminated by night? By floodlights? You, know, you see a picture and you see this beautiful dome, not just in the United States, but around the world, and it's illuminated with floodlights, right? The Holy Spirit is like those hidden floodlights that illuminate that beautiful building at night. The lights are hidden so that the building is visible. So the attention is drawn to the building, not the floodlights. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the floodlight that always shines the light on Jesus, always reveals Jesus. Paul says, Jesus ransomed us from the slave market of sin. You're not your own because you're bought with a price. You don't own your body because you didn't create your body, number one. Number two, Jesus Christ redeemed your body, your soul and your body at the cross. He ransomed us from the slave market of sin. He paid our freedom from Satan's kingdom with his own blood. He died in our place. He adopted us into our family. He made us part of our, his body. We don't own our souls and we don't own our bodies either. Yes? So everything we have and everything we do belongs to the one who purchased us. We're not owners, we're managers. Here's the essence of all sin and especially sexual sin. We are creatures, we are created by God who is our creator. We were designed by God to have our greatest joy, our greatest fulfillment, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest delight in Him. The creature finds their greatest delight in the Creator. All sin is, is a belief that I can find greater joy, greater satisfaction, greater delight, greater happiness in something other than a relationship with the Creator. That's what sin is. God created Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, I fellowship with you and I walk with you every night in the cool of the day. Perfect fellowship with the creator. What does Satan come along and say? The fruit of the tree will bring you more joy than knowing God. And you go, whoa, that's some fruit, right? He says, you'll have knowledge like God. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And it was so persuasive, they bought it. Right? The same three temptations Satan's been using for thousands of years, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Money, sex, and power. Same three. Satan is not creative. He knows what works. He's going to hit you with one of those three. Money, sex, and power. One of the three. Because he has, he tries to convince us that if we pursue those, we will find more joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, peace and contentment in those than we will in God himself. That's what Romans 1 says. They exchange the glory of God for the image. Right? The Corinthians are saying, Lord Jesus... It's good to know you, but you have no idea how good it feels to be with that prostitute. Unbelievable. Jesus, if you knew, if you only knew how good that felt. That's idolatry because that says God knowing you, the creator, is not as good as participating in this sin. And that's the essence of all sin. It's basically not delighting in God. It's delighting in something God created. Now, did God create sex? Of course. Is sex inside marriage a delightful thing? Don't say no. Amen. I've got one delusional guy over here. That's good. Of course. Sex inside marriage is a design from God. It's something of who he is. He created it for intense ecstasy. He created it for joy and delight and peace and security and satisfaction, all those things, inside marriage. So we should be delighted in it. It should be something. But when we say, God, I know sex is good, 
And I know you're good, but I think sex is better than you. Or I think if I had enough money, that would get the job done, and I don't need a relationship with you. Because money makes me independent, right? And if I only had power, power I can get what I want, and I don't have to depend on you. Ain't that great? If I have enough money, I don't have to depend on you. See, that's the pull. It says I can be independent of God if I have enough of something other than God. And that is the lie of Satan. The Corinthians are specifically being taken to task because of their sin of sexual sin. And they're believing that they have greater joy in this participation with a prostitute than they do in God himself. And we go, well, Brad, okay, I get that. But I don't visit those kind of places. I believe that. You don't. But every single one of us are tempted every day to substitute something for your joy in Jesus. The essence of temptation is to substitute something for Jesus. Something that he's created, a good gift from God, Satan wants to make into an idol. What's an idol? An idol is anything we value more than God himself. You were created for ecstasy in your relationship with Jesus. If we believe the lie that something other than Jesus will satisfy our soul, we're blinded. And that's where the word of God and the Holy Spirit can open our eyes and our heart to see the reality of the goodness of God. How do we deal with that? Physically, Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So within the arena of sexual sin, commit your bodies to the Lord, commit your desires to the Lord, and what? He says, I will give you the desires of your heart. Indulge yourself in God. Refuse to believe the lie that there is satisfaction in anything that is equivalent to knowing Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Tom's going to come and lead us in our praise and our prayers. Let's review. Number one, refuse to practice anything that enslaves you or makes you unprofitable to God. Number two. Those who are spiritually united with Christ should never become sexually united outside of marriage. Number three, don't stand your ground to fight sexual immorality. Run for your life. And lastly, Jesus bought you, owns you, and lives in you. So manage your body so that he is honored. Foundational stuff, but very, very important. I love you all. And now that you know...